In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. What has been the most challenging experience in your life? Was it physical or mental? Chosen or forced upon you? Looking back, how did it transform you? On today's podcast, we welcome back Dr. Susan Hannon to discuss the benefits of doing hard things. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McPhillin. You can find me at drmcphillin.com. You can access all our episodes of the Radically Genuine Podcast from that site. You could also follow me on Twitter at Dr. McPhillin. Fellas, from the last podcast, we were talking a lot about beliefs. And after that podcast, I went home and manifested the Phillies into the World Series. After the Chili Festival? After the Chili Festival. So <laughs> all Philadelphia Phillies fans, you are welcome. Yes. I created this in my mind. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if this is all an illusion and you're just in it, but I did create the Phillies into the World Series. Wonderful. And right before Bryce Harper hit that eighth inning home run, I actually was picturing it and believing it in my mind. And it did occur. Hey, so, are, you, are you familiar with the God complex? <laughs> <laughs> no, tell me more. <laughs> no, but beliefs are powerful. And, and today's really an interesting podcast episode because we're going to really kind of take steps forward into how to improve mental well-being and quality of life. And I'm honored to bring my friend and colleague, Back onto the podcast, Dr. Susan Hannon, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Lafayette College and Director of Clinical Research here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. Dr. Hannon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back. We are up bright and early because we like to do hard things. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, that's the motto for today's podcast is actually doing hard things. And we're, integrate, we're going to integrate science, we're going to integrate hard science, psychological science, everything we know about uh, human evolution to try to understand how to really enhance mental well-being. We're in a culture and society that I think in, in many ways undermines people's ability to do difficult and hard things. The reason why Dr. Hannon is here today is because... She started a process, many of you might be aware of this because it's really popular right now, is a specific program called 75 Hard. I'm going to let Dr. Hannon talk about what the 75 Hard program is. But we have all these opportunities to integrate um, so many different interesting conversations, stories, and science about how actually doing hard things can change our lives, our, the perception of what it means to overcome challenges. But I'm also, I'm just fascinated by trying to, um, you know, enhance positivity, positive experiences, enhance mental well-being, improve sleep, improve health, improve relationships all through 
like new ways of thinking. So welcome, Dr. Hannon. Why don't you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your journey here with 75 Hard? Sure. So this program was introduced to me by one of my good friends at uh, the CrossFit gym that I work out at. And he and a couple other people at the gym did it back in, gosh, I think they maybe started in April or May. And I thought it sounded really hard at the time. And I really had very little interest in doing it. Um, and then I was on vacation. Let me stop you right there. I'm going to yeah. ask questions along the Please? way. Please. So your automatic response was to not have any interest in doing that. Why at that time? Oh, good question. Mm, I think I had the belief in my mind that there was no way I had time for that. Um, so first, I guess, let me just jump in now to tell you what the 75 hard entails. So... For 75 days, you engage in two separate 45-minute workouts per day. You get to choose what those workouts are. They could be as intense as a CrossFit workout, or it could be two 45-minute walks outside. One of the walks has to be outside, or I'm sorry, one of the workouts has to be outside. So rain or shine, snow, whatever the weather might be. Um, so two 45-minute workouts, drinking a gallon of water a day taking a progress picture of yourself each day, um, following a meal plan. Again, you get to choose what that meal plan is. But following that meal plan, no cheat meals for 75 days, no alcohol for 75 days. I'm out. <laughs> we were just talking about that. That's the narrative in your mind. <laughs> There's a lot of narratives in my mind. <laughs> no alcohol for 75 days and reading 10 pages of a self-help or non-fiction book. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I think I hit all of them. What day are you on? I'm on day 67. Wow. Oh, almost done. Wow. Do we have like applause that we can hit on there? I, I forget Some which kind one it of is. Ding. <laughs> Congratulations. You can um, knock out thanks. like three books during this process. I think I'm on my fourth book. Okay. Yep. So you're doing more than 10 pages. Or you're just reading short stories. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We can talk about that um, maybe later. I love reading. Okay. I've been a voracious reader for a long time. And so I'm constantly reading many books. I have found though that having, forcing myself to read 10 pages a day, like making it a rule has started to change my relationship with reading in a bit of a negative way. Mm. So we can talk about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm on my fourth book. And um, I think it should be stated that it can't be an audio book. I'm an audio book right. listener. Yep. Why, why, why not? Like if you're listening to things, you know what I mean? Like why not? I don't know. Maybe it's, it's too not easy. hard. It's easier. <laughs> This is all about mental toughness. It right? is, Be yeah. Because there's there's a lot about this that is there's some there can be an unhealthy nature to it, right? Because um, you're you could overtrain, right? Like the two workouts a day could potentially be problematic. Um, but it's actually doing something that's really hard mm -hmm. is what provides the benefit. Oh, so you're you're on day sixty eight. Uh, sixty seven. Sixty seven. Yeah. What is what has your experience been throughout this process? Can you take us from the beginning mm -hmm. to the middle to the end? Yeah. So, well, let me go back. So over the summer, I was on vacation with two other good friends of mine. And I was sitting at this little cafe with my friend. And uh, he was just talking about how he wanted to 
like change things in his life and wanted to lose some weight and do some other things. And um, I remembered uh, my other friend talking about this program, 75 Hard, and I'm like, you should do that when we get back from vacation. Like, that would be a great time to start. And I was like, I'll do it with you. And so it, it, if I'm being honest with myself, it, it, the initial thought was this is something that I could do uh, with my friend as a way to help motivate him and like maybe I'll get some benefits from it as well. And it's so interesting. I, I, this happens a lot in my life where like when I don't think about something too much and I just dive in, that's when I'm the most successful. So back in April, May, when other people were doing it that I knew, I, there was a lot of narrative in my head of there's no way I could fit into 45-minute workouts a day. Like, the, just the timing of that is impossible. But once I, I let that go and just didn't give that thought more fuel, it, it became a possibility. So um, I forget. Man, I, I wish I remembered the exact day that we started. I don't remember the exact day that it started, but it coincided with the first week of the semester for me. So I had been off for the summer. Summers are, like, pretty casual for me. I'm not teaching. I'm doing research, but my time is completely my own. So it's a, a huge shift to go from summer to back to teaching at Lafayette. And so, yeah, just, I guess, kind of coincidentally, we started the program right at a very busy time for me. Um, so the first two weeks were probably the hardest in that um, I was not drinking anywhere near a gallon of water a day when I started the program. I was drinking, I wanted to be drinking half a gallon, 64 ounces, but in reality, I was probably drinking close to 32, so like a Nalgene full. Um, so I felt gross so you, the first week. So you were week. probably chronically dehydrated. Oh, yeah. Yes. I realize that now. I absolutely was. Mm -hmm. I would imagine most people are. I don't know. No. I don't know. I'm sure some people are. So that made you feel gross in the first few days I just felt so bloated retaining and water. It, yeah retaining water I felt like I was forcing it um and I just again like the narrative started going in my mind of I'm supposed to be feeling better when I'm starting a program like this and I feel heavy and just gross and so that was very challenging and then I was just exhausted those first two weeks because I started teaching again. My schedule was very hectic. And now, no matter what, I had to do two 45-minute workouts a day. So I would be like teach and then hurry up and change into workout clothes and then go for a run and then come back, change. And, and so it just felt very chaotic in the beginning. Um, but it's, it's fascinating, at least in my mind, once I commit to something like once I said I am doing this thing and I had others too that were helping hold me accountable because they either knew about it or they were doing it with me uh I had to do it <laughs> it, yeah. it felt like no longer an option so there's some social benefits to this as well so you're you're doing it within with friends yes and you're motivating each other yeah and so there's this there's the constant contact so when we talk about things that are really important in creating a life of value one that's worth living we know the importance of like social connection is a real important factor in that experience. So if you're doing something hard with a group, it keeps your motivation up. Mm -hmm. So the first two weeks were the hardest because of how your body was feeling. 
physically, I would say they were the hardest. Yes, because I felt very heavy and I just felt exhausted. There were also (laughs) some days where, so for example, on Tuesdays, I start teaching at eight in the morning and I work at Lafayette and then I come and see clients here until eight at night. So, and and my Wednesday looks very similar to that as well. It was around that time that our our coffee bill for the practice started to increase. <laughs> That's so true. We can talk about, yes, the now caffeine addiction I have, which is not a goal of 75 hard, but that was just a side effect. Um, we all took a sip of coffee. When we, <laughs> I know. I was like a prime. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, what were you saying? Now I completely Your forgot. Your caffeine addiction. No, but we're talking that. about the memory problems from this. <laughs> oh, in the first, but in the first two weeks, I promise you, this is a good program. <laughs> in, in the first two weeks, you struggle uh, struggling physically. Yeah. So, oh, yes. Yes. So, okay. So there were some yeah. days where, uh, the gym I go to, they have a 5am workout. So that was the only time I could go. And I maybe, I literally didn't have time in my day to do two walks outside or a walk and a run. So I was now someone who would get up at 4.30 and go to the gym at 5. And it it blows my mind saying this out loud because I always had the belief in my mind that I was just not one of those people, that that was a different like species of human mm. that got up early and went to the gym and worked out at 5 a.m. And I had just convinced myself that that was not me. And so, it, yeah, it's just fascinating that the, the first day that I had to do that, I, like I, I got up, I set my alarm, I woke up at 4.15, 4.30, went and did it. And then that that started to break apart that false narrative in my mind of that that was something separate than me, that I could not do that. So you begin to create a new reality for yourself. Yeah, you really do redefine everything you thought you knew about yourself. Okay, so when you do create that new experience, what are some of the emotional and mental benefits of doing that? Like, how did you begin to feel? There was a lot of pride, um, like feeling of accomplishment. Again, like, and I would say the biggest one for me is, and this is something that I'm still sitting with right now, but this thought of, okay, if I can do all of these things and I thought I couldn't do most of these things, what else can I do? It really, it, 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 it blows apart this thing that you thought was the ceiling for yourself and you recognize maybe there is no ceiling Yes, and you can just keep becoming more. And there's nothing special about me. Like I, anyone can do this. You just created a narrative. Uh, What do you mean? There's nothing special about me. But wh- what I, if you believed you were special? <clears throat> well, I guess does that I, change your experience? Well, what I'm trying to say is, I pro- never could have, I never would have thought that I could put the Phillies in the World Series. <laughs> 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 well, Roger's God, I guess, right? As you said, so <laughs> he likes to think so. But you are God too. Mm, yes, I know what you mean by Do that. You know we're all God. I, I know what you mean by that, and I agree with you. Okay. Um, but what are I'm, you though? That's maybe another what podcast. If God was one <laughs> of us. Oh boy, just a stranger. This is going to be. This is definitely edited out. I know. This is. Come on. This is too early in the morning. Oh, that's why. That was fun. Okay, but no. I, so here's what I'm trying to say about that. So you know, I talk to my students about this because they see me lugging around this gallon jug, and I oh, talk about it. yes. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering what that was. I thought it was a. That's app. the okay. amount of water. Did you have I to get up at night to pee now, and you didn't have to do that. Not anymore. No, I, you learn that if you stop drinking before eight 
p.m. that or whatever it is you for you you time it out yeah but no so I tell I talk to my students about this and you know how I wake up at 4 30 to go work out sometimes and it blows their mind and what I try to communicate to them is I am no different than you I'm not special and I don't mean that in a demeaning way or uh, or a um, self-critical way it's just it, it it really is the narrative in your mind yeah and if you tell yourself you're not a 5 a.m. person, you're not going to be. Mm-hmm. So how, how long before when that mindset just started to kick in and the narrative started to change? Was it about two weeks? Or did you have any, like, wake up and go, I don't want to do this today later on? You know what I oh, mean? Did yeah. it continue to be difficult? As, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say the first two weeks were the hardest in the sense that my body was just adjusting to the changes, to the water, to the multiple workouts. I mean, no, just the other day. Um, I felt like I was like stumbling through my walk. I, I like walking up at Jacobsburg. It's the state park that's north of us. Um, and yeah, like if I wasn't doing the challenge, I likely would have stayed home and sat on my couch and maybe read a book, but I had to do another workout. And so, yeah. Um, and I'm very tired now, so I'm very close to being done and I just, my, I feel good and I feel a little run down and I'm noticing some aches and pains in my body that maybe I hadn't noticed before. So I'm looking forward to a rest. Um, but yeah, it, there were different parts of hardness along the way. Or, uh, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say if people listening that might be interested in doing this, what if you on a weekend, 45 minutes, if I'm, if I have to like mow the lawn, things like that, would that be considered 45 minutes outside of working out considering I'm, you physical exertion you get to make it what you want it okay. to be i think that's the beauty of the program so it was developed by andy frizella i hope i'm saying that name correctly there's you know a whole website dedicated to it uh he has his own podcast um and he talks about on his his web how you know because a lot of people with kids will say there's no way i could do this especially with young kids um which i will say my colleague also did it with me at Lafayette and she is a beast. She has two small kids. I think they're under the age of five and she was able to make this work. Crap. That um, is my excuse. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So like running around with your kids and maybe like doing some jumping jacks or push-ups while you're doing it, like that can count. You're, you're, you're moving, right? right? That could count as one of your workouts. Yeah. Cool. I don't know if you've read Sean's book, um, three years soft. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Sean. Can I get a Can I get a signed copy? I didn't send it to you already? No. There was only three people that bought it. One was my mom. <laughs> right. Um wait, I got a question. Are you the type of person who typically establishes a routine? Um I think for oh, sorry, I might I might be frustrating with this, but I think for a long time I had the narrative in my head that I was the person who established a routine mm-hmm. and I I see the benefits of routine. I also see the potential downsides of so strictly adhering to a routine just for the sake of it. Mm. Uh, but when it comes to something like this, that's yeah. very goal oriented. Yeah. You almost need to be disciplined about it. And, yes. and did that play a big role in 67 days still kind of pushing forward? Yes. So yes, there was the routine and that I had to do those certain tasks for 75 days. Mm-hmm. My days look different though every day. And part of that is because I have flexibility in my schedule mm. as a professor. My each day does not look the same. 
Um, so I think I'm just struggling answering that question because, yes, uh, I had to commit to that, those, those, um, those steps, those commitments, but there was still variety within the day, if that makes sense. But you needed to commit to that early morning workout in order to achieve you know, half of what you had to do for the day. And I, th- the way that some, the way my experience has been is that it has really taught me the practice of diffusing from my thoughts because I would right. So I think in the past, um, I would let my mind or my ego, whatever you want to call it, convince me that I wasn't these things that I couldn't do this. And so by just by doing it, by making the commitment for action, even when those thoughts came in my mind of the, the last thing I want to do right now is wake up at 4.15, I, I recognize those as thoughts and not as actually who I am, um, which is we do that in therapy all the time, right? I'm looking at Roger. Yeah, th- it's so important because I'm going to have some of my clients listen to this podcast episode because we're, we're, ta- we're talking about benefits. You know, the first one that you're saying is that we create a narrative about who we are and what we're capable of. And by doing something like this, you are challenging that idea and you're actually creating a new story, a new narrative. But in that story, it's that I can do hard things. I can, I can become something, I can be someone that I never believed that I could. And that is powerful. And that, that power of doing that changes your entire experience of your life. There's gonna be people that you know, come into this office and they're gonna be struggling with this idea that they are mentally ill or they're an addict and they, and they attach this label to them or they need something to feel good or they're not going to be able to have the life others have. And it's not that dissimilar from this idea that you cannot be that person who gets up at 4.30 in the morning and does a workout. And how we handle this as, as psychologists or mental health professionals is extremely important because we can actually buy into that narrative and we can treat that person as if they're fragile, as if they're ill they're disordered. And I think that idea is inherently harmful mm-hmm. in, in every aspect. And so how do you begin to create and, sh- and, and um, shift a narrative? It's through action. Mm-hmm. You can't do it unless there's action. And you don't become that person unless you just do it. At some point, there was just opposite action, right? Yeah. I am not going to live by what my mind tells me. I'm going to do this. Um, are you guys, have you heard about the 12 hour, 12 hour challenge? It's a 12 hour walk that it was, it was started. Uh, I listened to Adam Carolla's podcast and he had interviewed, uh, Colin O'Brady, Colin O'Brady in like 2018 did a solo trek across Antarctica and he had to walk for 12 hours a day for, I think it's 54 days straight in order to complete it. And while he was out on that walk, he said, although it was the most difficult thing he's ever done, harsh terrain, climate, he just had these moments of just complete like clarity and deep flow and thoughts. And during COVID, he had, like many of us, just this blah, you know, trying to like get back to that feeling. So one day he just decided to go out on a walk and walked for 12 hours straight with no destination in mind, just to walk for 12 hours, not talk to anybody put his phone into airplane mode, no earbuds, just walk. And now he's challenging others to do the same thing, to by themselves, not with a friend, you just go out and you walk for 12 hours straight 
and everybody's starting to do it and then document and share those things that in their mind have um, kind of been revealed to them. Mm. And uh, Corolla is like challenging his team to do it and they're all picking a day and it's basically like, you know, get up at 6 a.m., start walking and then you're done by six and the sun's setting. So you really just need to like go out and do it. That's something I've been thinking about because it's only one day. And, um, <laughs> and I'd, I'd be curious to see what, what came up in my mind and Vinnie Tortorich, who's kind of on his show every once in a while, he's a, um, a fitness guy and, uh, really into, um, health talked about what happened to him where he was thinking about, uh, people in elementary school or high school that he was maybe cruel to how it made him feel. And how he wanted to reach out to those people and apologize because your mind just keeps going. You don't have something to distract and you're not having conversation with somebody. You're just kind of absorbing and like really being mindful of everything around you and then going deep into your own thoughts. It's kind of interesting. So let me talk about this neuromodulator called dopamine. Do you guys know much about dopamine? It's 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 one of those. uh, It makes you happy. It makes you energetic. It's, it's, it's interesting because I, I think we have to be more connected with evolutionary biology in our field, Susan, mm-hmm. because there's so much about uh, the human experience and human behavior that just makes sense based on how we've evolved. So dopamine is this neuromodulator that's connected to a lot of other neurotransmitters and experience. Most importantly, I think it's like first cousin would be norepinephrine so adrenaline right so it's a motivator it's a driver so if if you are hungry let's go back hundreds or thousands of years dopamine would drive you to hunt or to forage because you have to find food and then once you would make that kill or you would find food or you would eat there would be a, a reward like that's the elevated dopamine okay and then after you experience that dopamine actually drops to baseline or even below baseline, which is really important. So you can't always feel a high reward, right? It's going to go down to baseline. But when you need that reward again, like to survive, and we're talking about things like food, sex, then you have to go and you have to um, motivate and there has to be effort in order to get the reward. And with that effort, is that spike in that dopamine, right? Without the need for effort, right? Let's just say sex was always available, food was always available, anything you needed was always available. You wouldn't get those same spikes in in dopamine. In fact, there's good evidence that too too many rewards without any effort leads to a decrease in baseline dopamine. Now, dopamine is mood producing, right? We're talking about Um, something that's connected to a lot of other neurochemicals around mood. Bottom line is this, is as human beings, we are designed to actually do things that are hard or difficult in order to get a reward. And that's about growth. So it's not just about hunting. It's about working out. It's about learning because you get a dopamine response from learning something new. It's about actually working to develop relationships or to have sex, which gets us into these really interesting potential podcasts and episodes like around the hookup culture. 
what if sex is too easy, right? It cheapens it, right? Everything becomes cheapened if it's not hard, if it's not earned. The human experience becomes dull. And so when you start thinking about increases in depression in our society, and you start thinking about the idea that people are just not as motivated or happy, and then there's societal and political forces that are trying to tell you you'd be happy if you were just given everything. That's a lie. I mean, that's such a fucking lie based on everything we know about the human condition. When there are political forces that say you'd be happy not owning anything. When everyone would get paid the exact same. And you didn't have to earn it or you didn't have to work for it. Neurobiology would tell us that there's no way that can happen that there is actual value in the human spirit forging forward and trying to create new things. Anything that's provided to you that's easy is actually going to make you depressed. And think about the education system, how much we call it, call it dumbing down the education system, but reality is it's trying to make it easier for everybody to just move forward. And then you almost see a correlation in the amount of individuals at the public school setting in any way that are either diagnosed with depression, right, anxiety, things like that. You could actually make the correlation that were make it more challenging might actually, you know, be better. But that's not what we're being told. Make it easier, you know, so that everybody can get by. Think about that from a financial standpoint. The generational wealth uh, when those when it's passed down to children yes. or grandchildren, they're often not that happy because they haven't earned it. Or somebody wins a lottery. Well, they have all this money and maybe they have that initial dopamine rush of like, oh my God, my life's going to change. And then it just goes right back down and then they're kind of miserable. We've always said, generations always say, hey, I don't want you to have to go through what I went through. Mm. We've had that conversation, I think, before in this podcast. We have, yeah. And I think that that might be one of the worst bits of advice you could give. I think there's a lot of learning there. And yeah. people like Warren Buffett, who basically is one of the richest people in the world, decided I'm not going to give my children you know, more than they need. I'm going to give them enough that they'll be comfortable, uh, which is more than most of us will ever have in a lifetime, but they're not getting everything. He's mm -hmm. giving it all away. And this just makes me think of my own experience um, as a professor. And Roger, I think this gets back to what you were saying, how it's the effort, it's the hardness that over time can influence our dopaminergic system or whatever it is that we're calling it. And I just, I think about, a lot of students at Lafayette who they put in a lot of effort, but I would argue they're not focused on the effort. They're not focused on the process. They're focused on getting that A. Mm -hmm. And it's catastrophic if they do not get the A. And so I think, right, there's something. It's not, it's not just... Um, it's not just the hard work. Because if, if, even if you're working hard, if you're focused on the outcome, that can have a negative effect, Right. So I got, there's this very classic study where they had young kids. I don't know. They might've been in first grade, second grade, third grade. I can't even remember, but they were, um, they were told to, uh, just to draw, right. They just to draw and, uh, and, and create, and they all were doing it and they loved doing it. And it was, it was just part of the daily class. And then they, uh, they started, they chose to reward them with these gold stars so every kid that would complete something artistic would then get a, a gold star, right? And so that like seemed to maintain this desire to want to continue to draw pictures and engage with art. And then 
in the study, they took away the gold star. And what did they see? Kids no longer wanted to draw. It decreased their actual motivation and their satisfaction. When they loved it before. Even they didn't need the gold stars. They never needed it. Yeah. So it's something that it's like intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. That once you were getting extrinsic rewards, it led to a dopamine response. But then you didn't get it anymore. Your baseline dopamine probably dropped. Something that was naturally inherently positive and a positive experience no longer became that anymore because you weren't getting the reward which gives us a lot of information into things that we've talked about before, growth mindset for one. Like Carol Dweck's research at Stanford, those who seem to do much better in life become lifelong learners. It is not about the reward. It is that process. It's I want to, I want to learn something new. I want to get better. It is everything that is a negative feedback that is provided to me is an opportunity to learn. You're actually getting in that way of living life, every new thing, because it's novel, will provide elevated dopamine because there's some reward. So this new thing, I'm learning this new thing, that's exciting. It creates something new. It gives me a new opportunity to go down in a different direction. And we're creating new experiences in our, in our lives. But if your only motivation is to do something for some extrinsic reaction or reward from your environment, that's almost inherently soul-crushing. You're almost setting something up that your value in life is getting the approval from those around you. And first of all, you have to maintain it constantly. You'd always have to get that reward, which is certainly not realistic at all. But then the reward from what we know about neurobiology, the dopamine response is going to decrease. You can't keep going back to the same thing, whether that's video games, whether that's cocaine, whether that's porn, or whether that's approval. It's going to decrease your baseline level of dopamine. It inherently will decrease your, your quality of life. And I can speak to that experientially with my, just my experience with 75 hard. So when I first started it already, I was thinking to the end point of like, Ooh, what dessert am I going to have? Because yeah. I, I, um, historically have had a high sweet tooth and, um, I'm done November 6th and bacon fest in Easton is going to be going. <laughs> and I, I, is that, is that better than chili fest in South Bethlehem? <laughs> <laughs> and I live downtown. So the whole place just smells like bacon. And I was very much focused on, uh, the reward at the end. And that's completely changed now where like I, I had to remind myself what day I was on today. Cause I knew you guys would probably ask. It's like, okay, I'm on 67 and like, sure, am I probably going to have like some piece of chocolate, chocolate cake, something on, on day 76? Yeah, I might, but I don't really care like that. I've just really lost focused on, on what happens at the end. And I'm much more focused on like, oh, it's, it's really, it's cool to be in this place of uncertainty and, uh, and hardness. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the next hard thing because I see now that's where like the magic happens. That's where the growth happens. Hmm. You've rewired your brain. I guess you, you have, you've rewired your brain. Yeah. When you, when you think about these challenging experiences, either that fixed mindset or that growth mindset, one of the things that people do to cope during a challenging period is what you did, which was the time shifting. You know, you look out into the future and you say, 
I'm going to have this reward of bacon or <laughs> during uh, difficult periods, I was saying to myself, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And I just know I need to get through it. But at what point did you completely start framing this experience different from something you had committed yourself to do, which was going to be difficult to now committing yourself to this lifestyle that's going to continue to reward you from challenging experiences? How long did that take? Because I feel like over the last 67 days, there had to be a moment where you just recognized that shift. I actually don't know if there was a moment. Um, At least it's a really good question. And I can't pinpoint a moment. I will say too, this year in particular has been challenging for me and other personal stuff has happened that I think has helped facilitate this change. So 75 hard is a big part of it, but it's certainly not the only part of the story. Um, so I think this change has been happening for me for a little while now, but at, at some point, yes, during this program, I, it, 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 I guess maybe it felt a little bit more gradual than this sudden insight. Um, I just stopped thinking about the end point and just started being in the moment and, and savoring, I don't know if that's the right word, but, but yeah, savoring in this, um, experience of, like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm waking up every day and doing this. And just the accomplishment, I guess, that mm-hmm. that comes with that. Yeah. And, you, Sean, you say, like, the idea of thinking about the reward. From what I understand about the neurobiology, if you are doing something hard only for the reward, it ends up changing the experience. So it is actually engaging in something difficult, which is going to give you benefits. The benefits physically... There are going to be released, you know, pleasure chemicals in the process of doing something that's really challenging. But we all strive for, and human beings seem to strive for mental clarity, uh, focus, and feeling calm. Right? Um, we human beings don't necessarily strive to be high or for pleasure. Right? That that experience is like fleeting. It happens. You certainly want it to be tied to a behavior that's promoting well-being and health and positivity and a number of things. So if you're getting high from like cocaine, for example, and this is, I want to get into the alcohol part of this, or if you're getting, you're getting high from a, from a substance, a lot of negative things can happen in, in that kind of state because your, your, um, your judgment's impaired in a number of things. So there gets to be associations there, but we know like that, that, that seeking of that, that chemical or that dopamine, um, you eventually don't get the same degree of pleasure from it. So exercise, for example, if you are doing exercise in order to get a dopamine rush or reward, it seems to lower the baseline level of of dopamine. Mm -hmm. But if you want to just get that next rep or you want to improve your time, something that you're doing to engage or you feel more clarity and focus when you're exercising, that seems to have greater benefits because ultimately you want that dopamine response or reaction to not be too elevated and you want it to be prolonged. And in that you can achieve more mental clarity, focus and calmness. So it's like doing therapy. When you're doing therapy, you want to be clear, mentally focused and calm. If you are irritated, if you aren't focused, if you don't feel well, 
it makes that entire process somewhat painful. Yep. And I've really kind of connected in my life about things I have to do before I get into that therapy session to try to optimize that. You can't always be successful in doing that. But then you build a tolerance for discomfort when you're not there. So one of the other benefits, I think, from what you're doing is you increase your tolerance for discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that has been the the most, the biggest thing that I've learned from the, and I think for a long time, I was very intolerant of uncertainty. Um, since I was a kid, I've hated uncertainty and I've, I've seen how that's played out in my life over time. And so, yeah, it is such a shift to now say, oh, I might actually thrive in that space now and see more growth being in a space where like things are a little bit more chaotic because the world is chaos, right? Like, sure, we can be, like we have control over things and we don't have control over a lot of things and so much is uncertain and so. Until you learn. Like, I didn't feel like I had control over the Phillies series at all. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) The reason why I asked that question about routine was because I believe routines, people establish them for a sense of control. Yeah. Because it's the uncertainty. It's the things that, you know, inevitably are going to happen. I'm going to control as much as I can today by waking up, doing this thing, doing the next thing, having these kind of special moments throughout the day that I've dedicated for this and I know this is going to come. I, so I, I think that that depends. Um, from, what I, from what I believe right now, I think that limits your experience. Mm-hmm. So if you are you yeah, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I think yeah. it's some type of coping mechanism. Bang. I agree. And it's a it's a coping mechanism that I think is going to overall decrease your overall well-being in the long run. It might give you a sense of predictability and control, but then it doesn't expose you to creating the new realities, the new experiences that are actually going to um, be rewarding. And so it goes back to like the mental the mental stories that we we create if you're going to just stay with the same routine it's because somewhere like you're limiting yourself and and that's what you are supposed to do you should do that's who you are and it's also allowing you to feel in control of something that is scary or that is fear provoking and the the value i think really comes into doing things that are hard so doing something that's fear provoking doing something that's new putting yourself out there to be vulnerable Putting yourself out there to be judged, to be rejected. There is, there is something that is scary about that. But once you do it, it's, it's also rewarding and invigorating. Right. Like, so Roger, you asked me a day ago, two days ago to do this podcast. A, a year ago, I would have said absolutely not. Like in my mind, I would have said that's not enough time to prepare. I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm not going to sound competent. And I think this year and this program of 75 Hard has really just taught me so much faith in myself and that, um, yeah, like you can do things while scared, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the one of the big takeaways is we're focusing on the physical component of the 75 Hard, but you can take that same mindset and apply it to something that's not physical and maybe it's doing a TED Talk. You know, so for 75 days, I'm going to prepare to get in front of an audience and speak about something 
that I'm passionate about, even though I'm fearful of speaking in public, but I'm going to make myself get stronger every day by practicing and getting to a point where I can tell a great story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the program is described as a mental toughness mm. challenge. That is how it's... You have to persevere through it. Right. And it, it just, it, yeah, it blows all of the narrative in your mind out of the water. At least that's what it, it did for me. I want to talk a little bit about um, alcohol or substances in our current society. So uh, self-disclosure here, uh, I have committed to do, doing 75 hard. Um, so, when did you start? I'm on day three. Okay. So you've got two days under your belt. Yeah, I, I and I got up this morning and I did my 45-minute workout. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to say just Susan inspired me. I want to do shout-out to, to my wife who's going to be running the Boston Marathon and doing training for marathon. You know, she's, she qualified for that. and, and she, awesome. trained. she does a lot of hard things every, every day, and it's quite, it became quite normal for her. So when I asked her to do 75 hard with me, she's going to do everything but the alcohol. And interesting enough is when I was talking to you, what was I most concerned about? The alcohol. And I think I probably talked to you about it a couple weeks ago, or mm-hmm. no, probably even longer than that. And then I started like thinking, what's going on? Why am I scared to not drink alcohol? And it started an entire introspection for me that, and self-evaluation about how I was relying on alcohol for different things in my life. And I'm not a heavy drinker, but you know, I was really looking forward to the glass of wine to unwind at the end of the night or with my steak or doing things socially with my group. Uh, how much more interesting people get when they start drinking. And like being part of that process where people open up and become more real and genuine and say things they wouldn't otherwise say if they started drinking alcohol. And I've lost the ability to small talk because I became a a psychologist who talks all day with big things. So I hate small talk. I don't want to be around it. And I can't even stand just being in the presence of it. I'm laughing because I can relate so much to that. (laughs) And then I realized I was relying on alcohol to engage in conversations with people I don't know well to open them up to make the experience more interesting to me and so I and I and I attached to the narrative too that alcohol in moderation can be health promoting because it was sold to us right it was really really sold to us and I started drinking more throughout the pandemic and probably relying that on that more and you realize that over time the pleasure that you get from the alcohol decreases right so i do like the relaxing quality of one or two glasses of wine mm-hmm. but anything over that became like problematic i didn't feel well the next day it didn't enhance my experience i'm not going to say i didn't get some joy of like engaging people in a provocative way in conversations i'd like to do that's why we have this podcast for example so now i want to challenge myself in a, in a new way the holidays are coming up and it's probably the best time to commit to not drinking. And so I'm going to have to be forced to engage socially with people and be open with people and be genuine and start interesting conversations, even though I sense and take on their, their tension and how people are like so nervous when like they're in social situations and they might be like, if you don't know somebody, it's hard for them to open up and engage and 
life gets boring for me that way. When people just say the same things, it's very predictable. And I really hate that experience. So now I'm going to push myself to do new things, hard things. I'm going to have to socialize with other people who are drinking or intoxicated even and still be able to engage or leave those situations. I might have to alter or change relationships, which might be ultimately a really good thing. And so I was like reading about the benefits of 75 hard. One thing that is consistent is that people who stop drinking, their mental well-being improved. Mm -hmm. That was one of the greatest benefits because their sleep improved. They actually got more joy from social experiences. And a lot of people use alcohol for social anxiety because you're just inherently nervous being around people. But once you kind of get over that, that's a new experience. Now you're a person who doesn't have to have alcohol for any other reason than maybe there's you want to enjoy it here and there. And I'm not judging anyone who uses alcohol, but when it becomes too ingrained in your routine, there's no doubt that it decreases overall happiness and quality of life. I, I think the whole removal of alcohol from the process of 75 hard becomes easier because when you're committing to waking up early in the morning to get a workout in, drinking alcohol at the end of the day just gets in the way of so doing that. Help, yeah. And you actually have to go to bed a little bit earlier too because you still need to you know, recover and, and get your sleep. Um, I want to kind of throw this out and I don't know where I'm going to go with it, but when it comes to alcohol and addiction, this is something that I observed when it comes to the workout space. I had friends that were training for marathons or ran marathons and they got into it pretty uh, consistently and heavily. It became part of their, their identity. And you find out that in their past, they suffered from addiction, either from drugs or maybe it was alcoholism. And what I observed was the addiction for them went from marathons to cycling and swimming to doing triathlons and then constantly seeking out the next thing, which would then be Ironman. And the people that were in this group of training for Ironman, I'm going to say over-indexed significantly in that prior addiction uh, kind of category. Do you believe that that rush for dopamine and constantly searching for it becomes an addiction when you commit yourself to a certain lifestyle when it, with physical activities? I mean, I think it always comes down to what's the function of the behavior, right? And if it's serving the same function as, let's say, a previous addiction, then I'm curious about that, right? It's interesting because running a marathon or doing Ironmans can certainly be perceived as very healthy. Mm -hmm. And yet if it's serving to fulfill some other need or running from something, whatever it might be. Um, I'm certainly curious about that. And anecdotally, at least in, in the practice here and clients that I have seen, I have certainly seen that. Yeah. Cause it, it, it's chasing that, uh, reward that you now potentially can never achieve because you're, you're, if we're talking about dopamine, your baseline is now so much lower than what it was when it started. Yeah. So when Tracy said that she was going to train for a marathon, and with the goal to qualify for, for Boston, um, I expressed my concern like early on because of the addictive nature of that. So actually marathon uh, runners actually have um, higher all-cause mortality. It's not actually a healthy 
running a marathon or being a long distance runner is surprisingly not as healthy as you would think. It actually kind of, it does decrease your life expectancy um, because it's, it's really exerting and you really destroy your body in a lot of ways with that pounding and that, and those long runs. It's also very time consuming. So you're going to get that initial high from completing the marathon and then your, your pleasure is going to drop and then you're going to seek out that high again. So anything can be addictive. Anything, it can be really something that can be problematic, even what we would see as a, as a health-promoting behavior. 75 hard in itself isn't necessarily that health-promoting, right? You might do a lot of health-promoting things, and someone who is really unhealthy, changing your diet, exercising twice a day, and doing other things um, is good. But working out twice a day is not, not good for 75 days. It will wear you down physically. Um, so you start with something that might boost your, your immune system. You start with something that's really health-promoting. And in time, it's going to be harmful. You do have to recover after yeah. doing this. But the, the reason that you do 75 hard is, is the mental part. It's, that's the optimization of this. And so I, you know, anything that provides a, something that's, a, that's rewarding inherently can also become addictive. Sex can become addictive. Um, running can, and exercise can be addictive. Fasting can be addictive. Um, and fasting can be healthy in certain contexts. So there's so many things that can be just like obsessive and become dependent and you don't feel good unless you do them. And then that's a problem. Yeah, Sean, I appreciate you asking this question. Like now that I've had time to chew on it a little bit more, I can add some more. Um, yeah, so on one hand, I've gained so much faith in myself from this program. And like I said, it, it really has just blown like the narrative in my mind out of the water, but I, I am noticing some mm, addictive or like obsessive thoughts. So I, I haven't been in a calorie deficit the whole time, but I have certainly cut. Um, and I have a lot more muscle mass and I have noticed that and other people have noticed that and said like, Oh, Susan, you look so great. Your body has really changed. And that's rewarding. That's reinforcing for mm -hmm. me, at least my ego certainly likes that. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so there, I have had moments of, I guess, fearful thoughts or anxious thoughts of like, well, what do I do next? Like, I don't want to lose these gains. And, and right. So there's this part of me that knows I can become more, but then it always comes back to the why. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Like, right. So if it's coming from an ego driven place, I need to be careful of that because I think that's when it, for me, can become addictive. Where if it's more so coming from a place of like, I just want to grow and see what happens next. And I don't know what's going to happen. That feels a lot more healthy for me. So the mindset is going to determine because after the 75 days, and you say, okay, I'm done. The reward was I made it, right? I, I've done it. Do people just continue on with the same process or do they start to feel, if, if I don't do this, then I'm going to become unhealthy again? Like, is there a negative mindset that starts to occur after the 75 days? I'll let you know. Bring me back <laughs> on maybe in like a couple months and it, I'll tell you where I'm at. It would be interesting to see how many people do this more than once. I've heard there's a part two. I don't know what that is, but I've heard there's a second. 75 days of drinking. <laughs> That's right. We're going to do that one. That's right. It's called rehab. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, right. I am, 
already starting to think about what's next, but I am going to give myself a break and try to consolidate everything. So, so I added a couple things to my 75 hard and I eliminated a couple. I eliminated one thing. The, the daily photos, I, I'm not doing that. So the taking the progress pictures, like I'm not taking a picture of myself every what, day. What, is that is that just so you, the transformation of like, would it be weight loss or just the way you look? Um, without alcohol, I've heard people actually start to look better. I mean, is it just to see yourself improving? It's as to a see the progress, okay. yeah. I think I'm it so probably enhances motivation for some people. Maybe, I think, right, it could have different functions for different people. I think, uh, I thought, I had the thought that it was stupid because I didn't think I was going to see significant change because I, I was fairly in shape when I started. There is significant change. I'm shocked by the change. I think for other people, it could serve as a form of exposure because looking at pictures of themselves, uh, they have, you know, the narrative in their mind that it's so hard to do that, that by doing that, it, it, it's almost like a form of exposure. I'm curious why you, you seem to have such a reaction against that. Well, I, I wanted to look at this as something that's value driven. And um, the things that I added, I added two things onto this daily meditation for 75 straight days. Now I've been meditating, but I miss a day here and there. And then the, the second thing I added was uh, some form of compliment, love and kindness behavior. So every day there's going to be some um, like compliment or love and kindness behavior to a, another person. And I, I love the work that Kelly's been doing on this That has on this to podcast. be genuine. Listen, listen. <laughs> that has to be genuine. You've got something to look forward to. <laughs> uh, I better hear lots of compliments to Sean. You well, can't force I mean, that's, that. That's the biggest challenge. <laughs> <laughs> because Sean. he doesn't present with a lot of opportunities. <laughs> Did you okay. hear that though? You're, poor, you're poor breaking Sean. your goal right <laughs> yeah. now. Oh, failure. <laughs> I, I kid, I kid, I kid. Um, so you added those things, but why not the pictures? Um, I'll tell you why. Roger's very sensitive about his Audi belly button. <laughs> it, it's, about I've got two, it's about two and a half inches long and it oh gets God. in the way a lot. That's so gross. <laughs> I, I did not like the idea of doing this with focusing on me to change my body in any way. So I, there was no value of that to me. And I don't even want my attention there. I want my attention outward. So one of the things about, uh, you know, that I don't really like is the people posting pictures of their body constantly and then changes like, so that to me detracts from what the purpose is or what, what the value is. I'm also, a, you know, a psychologist who treats eating disorders, yeah. you know, that whole idea of trying to do something to change your, your body I, doesn't usually have great outcomes. Um, but if you do something to be healthy, if you do something because it makes you feel good, because it's aligned with your values, well, then I love that. But I hate the idea of focusing inward on yourself because that can become obsessive. Mm -hmm. And then what does that mean? Okay, so all right, my, my body looks a little bit, I cut down my body fat and I looked, well, what ultimately does that mean to me? Yeah, It doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't change anything in, in my life. And it's not why I want to do it. And I've experienced issues with this before because... I went through a, a ketogenic diet for a, for a while as I was transitioning to um, I was transitioning to like carnivore and nutrient dense and decreasing all my carbs and I cut all this body fat and then I found myself like wanting to keep that mm -hmm. but I was also carb depleted 
and other I had other negative effects like around mood and sometimes focus and a couple other things that were challenging. But then I saw my mind like, oh, I want to keep this six pack, 12 pack of abs that I have. But for what? You know, I'm a 46 year old man. I'm married. I've got three kids. What am I doing this for? You know, like, wh- why do I need to focus on that? This had no value to it, me. It just makes your Audi look bigger. <laughs> now, if, if I would just say 12 pack. <laughs> well, when you cut down, when you cut your body fat, she probably knows this because she's in a calorie descent. When you cut down your body fat, that all shows. Mm. But if I was like 24 years old and I was literally hunting for sex, right? Or for female approval. That's a dopamine reaction. You're doing something to get a reaction and a response where that's not where I am in my life. It doesn't mean anything. Mm. But I could see why, you know, someone else might do that because sex is important. Did you have to, does the 75 hard, you have to post the pictures then online? No. No, you just do it for yourself. yourself. There's an, so there's an app that I use, which, well, I don't know if you've downloaded the app. It was very helpful. It's like a checklist for me. But anyway, there's an option to, but I never share it. Okay. No, for the same reason, I also, um, as someone who sometimes treats folks with eating disorders, see the problematic nature of that culture of posting pics and comparisons and all of that. Um, so no, it's just for me. Okay. I got a couple more questions. Um, what was the hardest thing you've ever done before this? Or most challenging, I should say. I mean, how are we defining hard? Like, do I just get to Personally, define that? Yeah, yep. Mentally. Mentally, physically, whatever. I mean, this is going to be a really sad response, but watching my dad die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I get that. And that's relatable for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so go ahead. I don't want to get too personal, but these things are all part of it. Um, did that experience influence you and how you wanted to approach your life? It changed everything. Yeah. And this is when I was talking about earlier, how this year has been difficult for me personally. He passed on December 28th, 2021. So not even a year. Um, that it changed everything. Yeah. In in what way for you? (sighs) That's a good question. Um, it changed how I approached approach everything it, it 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 helped me uh tap into what's important to me it it was a reminder of how precious time is and how like we, we have such limited time here and how um like truly every moment matters or you can make every moment matter um it reconnected me with I don't want to say religion but spirituality in a very deep sense it, it gave it it gave me back a meaning in my life that was missing Sean I don't know about you but when when our father died and we were we were young and he died suddenly so 50th birthday heart attack gone so couldn't prepare for it didn't understand it I ended up going to get my doctorate you know, it changed everything for me because I, it changed the way I saw time. Yeah. It altered that. Uh, I, there's, my favorite phrase is memento mori, which is remember you will die. And so anytime that there's fear or there's self-doubt for me, I always go back to that. What does it matter, right? 
do things that are hard in order to enhance your life. Don't let fear or self-doubt or that narrative stop you. And so my hard things was going to a doctoral program, working full-time, actually having two jobs, putting my kids to bed on Sunday night, three kids under the age of five, not seeing them again till Friday afternoon. And it completely changed my perspective of what is hard. Some of it's, you know, problematic because I see a lot of people unwilling to do even moderately difficult things. And so in my life, it, ha- you know, it, it made it more difficult for me to develop relationships with some people. One of the things I have, you know, challenges with, with Sean and why we've even, you know, used the word dangerously naive is he tends to see everybody almost as the same, Right. Like every, every, you know, it's almost like this, um, you know, socialistic view of, of viewing people. Like everyone is, is the same. Everyone's intentions, everyone's mindsets, everyone's purpose is the same. And I don't see it that way. I see the world with great diverse variability based on so many different experiences and qualities and so forth. And so people who have the willingness to do things that are, are hard learn that it's a perception it's a mindset it's an idea and i want to surround myself with those people and so then when i get exposed to people who complain about minor things who moderate difficulty in their life becomes overwhelming who externalize blame who always give up a reason why they can't do things it's almost like i want to pull back I don't want to be around. And, I, and there's some process in my mind that devalues that individual. And I'm trying to overcome that through love and kindness and an open heart and growth in my life from being young now to being middle-aged for the rest of my life. Because everyone has a process that they have to go through. And there's a struggle. And there's something that you have to go through that's going to be challenging to get you to the next step. Maybe there's something about um, my psychology background and the work that I do that can help motivate some next step. And I think that's changing in mindset. And I don't think I would have went th- through that, Sean, if I didn't experience his loss suddenly. How about you? Um, for me, it became about experiences and not waiting. Mm-hmm. And um, once... I knew that our mother was in a better place. What did I do? I, I took off. You did, yeah. Because there was things that I wanted in my career and things that I wanted to experience in life, and I realized that staying in Philadelphia was going to limit the opportunities for me to experience those. So I, I got a job out in Los Angeles and started doing the type of work in my career that I wanted to be doing, and that was fulfilling. And then it led to other experiences that I... Kind of wanted to check off my my bucket list, and I've I've continued to do that. So uh, I look at everything as it, it could all go away the next day. Um, and during the course of when Israel and I got married and wanted to start a family, we kept on repeating the phrase "no regrets." So every time we wanted to do something, even though we had failed, and we were probably um, suffering from that sunk cost fallacy when it comes to trying to start a family and especially when you're older. Um, For me, it was just about, you know, I just said no regrets. Let's just keep doing things until we get to the point where we've achieved 
our, our goal and our experience and then kind of transition into the next thing and the next thing and not kind of keep ourselves committed to where we are, what we're doing, the same thing every, every single day. You really don't know if something is, quote, good or bad, and I hate using those words, but you, you don't know that until later on, right? Like, you might judge an experience to be bad, but then you find out a, le- a year later, like, wow, that put me in this situation where now I met this person or I had this new opportunity. So I think, yeah, really trying to stay away from those labels that just imprison us. I love right? that, that, that frame set, that mindset, and we've talked about it in here. It's those worst experiences in our lives at that moment which gets you to where you are now. Had my father not died, I wouldn't have moved to Los Angeles. I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have my child. And my child right now is the most rewarding thing that I have uh, in this moment. And I would never give that up. So then, therefore, sorry, Dad, happy birthday. <laughs> but, you know, you've moved on. And, and that's what got me to this place. Yeah, it, it, watching him die was the most profound thing that's ever happened to me. And I miss him every day. And I cry all the time. And... It, it changed my life. I, I know watching people die can be really traumatic for people, so I am not trying to glorify it at all. But it just it opened up this other door that I just feel like I'm in a completely almost like different dimension. And I, I wouldn't have had that experience had I not have been there and had that not have happened. So I know when my, my dad passed away at the height of COVID, but he was older, um, I, I actually experienced um, anger and um, because of that, because we weren't allowed to see him. We weren't, allowed, we weren't allowed to celebrate his life with a funeral. We were told that we couldn't. So I, my experience with that was one thing I've learned when you are passing, you, you, you have family, right? So family was important to me. But one of the things, and Roger can attest to this, I've never, I've been always uncomfortable because I've always thought differently than a lot of people and in a very unique way challenging things always been skeptical and i've never really wanted to let that out but after he passed and then after discuss discussions with him we came up with the idea of the podcast we came up with this i would have never put myself out there and i'm very vocal i'm very i can get along with people but man i'm petrified of of putting myself out there and now look where we are right and i don't have that fear anymore i don't have a fear of how people feel about me and what I say, and I know what I say sometimes is wrong. Maybe it's incorrect. Maybe it's not. But I love challenging now, and I've embraced it. It's opened my world up to that and that discomfort, that real discomfort of being judged because I have a different viewpoint. That's gone, and I, and I love that. I agree with it's that. freeing. Yeah, <laughs> you get comfortable in this room speaking openly, and knowing that there's hundreds of people that are listening that are probably shaking their head at something you're saying. Oh, yeah. But you're just like, you know, this is who I am. Yeah. Just deal with it. Yeah. This is just, these are my thoughts. And yeah, they probably are wrong. The, the older I get, the more I realize I know nothing. <laughs> I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. So I was inspired to, to tweet this yesterday. Um, it's an interesting conversation. I, I tweeted, freedom is not giving a fuck that someone else may judge you, criticize you, or reject you. Freedom is living your values. Freedom is standing for what you believe in and speaking your mind. I recommend it. Everything is temporary. Memento mori. And it's that idea of the search for freedom. And, you know, there is, when you place limits on yourself and you live in fear, you are self-imprisoning yourself, right? You are, you are controlled and you are limited. But freedom is 100% with all your heart and all your mind living a truth, a truth that exists for you. 
and I know everything changed for me is when I made decisions to do that. Because prior to that, I felt that, the imprisonment. I felt like I'm not living how I'm supposed to live. So there's something in your heart if you pay attention to it. And then once you just be true to whatever your calling is, it releases it. It creates a new experience. And not everyone's going to be happy. Not everyone's going to like what you say. In fact, the herd is actually going to probably really oppose that. The herd being, you know, what is convention, what we're conditioned, being just like everyone else. But it's also freeing because I'm not, I'm not saying or thinking anything just to get your approval. I'm just being me. And I think that has to come through when you do hard things. That's a reward for all this. And the spirituality part, um, going through loss, seeing somebody you love deteriorate and die. What is the spiritual growth that has occurred for you? Ooh, I, I love that question. Yeah, I feel like I can talk about this all day. <clears throat> um, it, it might be helpful to give some context first. So I was raised Roman Catholic. And so I was raised, at least in the church that I was raised in, um, to believe in a very separate, authoritative, dic dictator God, right? Where you do these good things as determined by this God, and maybe you'll get into heaven. But if you don't, then you're going to burn in hell for eternity. So there was so much fear around that. Um and I think even as a kid, I questioned whether that was true, but it was still, it was the threat of, well, if it is true, I better behave in this way because I don't want to burn in hell for eternity. Um, then I think as I got older and just got more into higher education, I, you know, really started to question the logic of that. And um, I stepped away from the church and then I went from being, agnostic to atheist for a while. And I was honestly the most depressed when I was atheist. Um, I just felt like my, like, what was the point? Okay. So we just turned to dirt and that's it. And I had no, mm, like no real meaning, I guess. And so after he died and I'd had, I've had other like spiritual mystical experiences, I would call, call it before he passed. But, um, it just, it, it took me down this path of this understanding of um, this like universal awareness, right? So we talked about earlier how uh, at least my recognition is we're not our thoughts. So much of us identify with the voice in our mind as us. Like, as me, that is who I am. I'm Susan. Um, when Susan is just a made-up name that my parents gave me. Like, that, that's not a real thing. Like, it's a character that I play. Like, Susan is the ticket to my experience, to this experience. But that's not me. That's not who I am. And so I started just, you know, reading different books and Buddhism and Hinduism and all these other different spiritualities and different podcasts. And I just have come to this recognition of, right, there's this universal awareness um, behind those thoughts. And we all have that. 
like it's, it's, it's all the same awareness. So Roger, when you said at the beginning, like you're God, I'm God, I'm like, I think I know what you mean by that because it's all the same awareness. Like we are just the universe experiencing ourselves and how cool is that? And so now I, I, I have, I guess the recognition of, or the belief, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I don't think life actually has any inherent meaning. Um, I think all of this is just happening. Uh, and so every moment you get to decide what you want your life to be about, you get to make meaning out of every single moment. I picture it, it as like a, a every moment is a blank canvas and you get to paint whatever you want. And the canvas you painted a second ago does not have to dictate the canvas you paint now. And that to me has just been really life changing. Here's been my life changing experience Sean's going to jump in there too. Do you want to no, go first? Go ahead and then I'll, I'll, I'll come in with something. Okay. Um, my life-changing experience was to, to realize that everything that happens on this journey is to serve us. And how did I come to that conclusion? Well, some mystical experiences, some through meditation, which is just listening and understanding, but also reading. Like that idea is actually a universal truth. So there, you know, there, from a science perspective, there's people who have had... Uh, we call them near-death experiences or people who have, you know, died and returned. And there's universality to everything that they've reported. That they come back and they return from the experience of death with this advanced wisdom and knowledge that everything is going to be okay and that everything that occurs is to serve you in some way. My belief and I recognize it to be my belief and respect anyone else's beliefs to be what they are, is that it's an evolution of the soul. You are to learn. Everything that happens to you is to grow you closer to your ideal self, whatever that may be. And so if you look at it through that lens, anything that is hard or difficult is necessary in that lesson. That lesson advances you. It elevates you. So now you're, you're developing what a new relationship to suffering or you're developing a new relationship to pain. Instead of pain is something that you need to escape from, you need to run away from, you need to drug, you need to change. And this goes into my ideas about mental health because we're, people are trying to sell the idea that mental health is the absence of pain. Pain is a symptom. You need to decrease it. But if it's something that is there to serve you, to elevate you in some way, you inherently will become more wise in that experience. Simply if it's not just the tolerating of that experience, but also what you learn about human nature and your capabilities. So you are, we have a purpose, it's in our heart. If you follow it, you're walking on that path to elevate your soul. If you're off of it, you're off that path, you will not feel well. And we should pay attention to that. And I'm not saying just physically well, but spiritually, spiritually well or mentally well. It's that feeling. It's that gut. I used, to, I used to always have this feeling in my gut all the time. Could never get rid of it. Nothing was ever good enough. Nothing was ever good enough. I need to go get the next thing. I needed to achieve the next thing. I needed to be the next thing. As if that, you know, that was getting me on my path. And if I do that, well, then I'll, you know, I'll feel better. It'll go away. Well, it never did. And didn't matter if I started a, a business. Didn't matter if I became a psychologist. It didn't mean if I published a book or if I published a paper. It didn't matter if I started a podcast. 
didn't matter. Those things didn't fulfill it. But once I started bringing it back and connecting that follow your heart and do what is right and engage more fully in the moment, it started, that feeling in my gut started to go away. I, um, I stumbled upon something on Hulu just the other night. It is called In and of Itself. It was a Broadway play that sold out. It was a one-man show. It's fantastic. And it brings up this idea of labels. When we label somebody as something, are we forcing that upon them? So it's a combination of how somebody may label you or how you may label yourself and the harm that that could cause. That's how I interpret it. But I recommend everybody go and watch it. This process for you, we started off talking about how you saw yourself. So prior to the 75 hard, how would you label yourself? And how would you label yourself now? New story. (laughs) 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 Oh, how did I label myself before? Hmm. And it it could be like one or two words. It doesn't have to be. Don't limit her. Well, that's how that's how um, it was in in the the idea of label. It's like one word, right? So okay. No, it's a really good question. I feel like I need to chew on it for a little bit first Um, because I think I'm struggling because, like I said earlier, those labels have really. they've been blown out of the water and I'm not, I'm not going to give you a new label now because I don't, I don't, I just, this is going to lead to my challenge for Roger replacing the, um, the bod shots of his Audi belly button (laughs) is I want you to do this now since you're only at day three label who you think you are now. And then at the conclusion of this, let's see if it's evolved. Excellent. That's what, that's why we have you here, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Every three months, Something comes out of Sean's mouth that's actually profound. <laughs> we have to wait another three months, but yeah, once I'll you see, get it, I'll I'll dopamine see you all in hit. January. <laughs> dopamine hit. Poor Sean. It's like the fourth time she said "poor Sean." I know. I don't like that label. <laughs> that's not how I see myself. <laughs> we actually doing this. We kind of like relive our childhood. You know, well, yeah, like the do. things that I, I, I say to I you. I bet sometimes your listeners forget that your brothers. Yeah. Really? I think so. They just think I'm a disrespectful asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Label. (laughs) That's right. I'm still thinking of a label for myself before 75 hard. Um, Limited, I think. Probably. Yeah. Limited. And now you're Susan the Conqueror. I was thinking of gang, gang of a game of Thrones. But I'm not even. I'm not even Susan. Like I, I reckon that's just a label. I know that sounds weird, probably to some listeners, but really, like that is just a, true, princess. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a character that I play, and well, I have fun playing it. But. I think that's the important takeaway from this conversation: is the evolution and the transformation we could all go through if we just put ourselves through a difficult period or something challenging. Is we realize we're not who we thought we were. We're actually capable of so much more. Mm-hmm. All right, so. Let's, let's conclude on this. Let's choose characters to play for a period of time and we'll come back and we'll talk about how it changed our experience. Characters as in like actual characters. You choose from, the character. From a no, movie? No, no, no. It doesn't have to be that. You, I'm going to be Patch Adams. <laughs> no. So she's, she, she said the idea of Susan was a character that it created, right? 
that's profound. We it is. all we all do that, so we create this idea of who we are and we live it out. And if that's if that's true, then we also then have the power to change that character. Exactly. So develop a new self and live it and let's come back and talk about the experience. Sounds good. I'll try, but I I see the flaw in that is that you want to change yourself. Sean, I'm telling you really that you should create a new character. <laughs> what happened to the compliments? Yeah, I'm not wasting my one today on him. <laughs> That's a good way to end it. <laughs> We've learned a lot. All right. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.